Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, in your kindness now, by your Spirit, uh, take this ancient word and apply it to this day, this very day, to our lives. I pray that the grace we are about to encounter would encourage us all and it would rescue us as we have need. Um, Jesus, show yourself now to be all that you are. We pray in your name. Amen. I'd like to start by telling you a story, and you've all heard these kinds of stories. You know how they start, right? Um, there were two men walking into a bar. A bar? Have you guys forgotten where you are? This is church. There were two men walking into a temple, you reprobates. Come on. Jeez. Two men walking into a temple. And obviously, I need to explain what a temple is to y'all. Um, because these two men are walking into a temple in first century Jerusalem, and that's the, it was the centerpiece of life in Jerusalem. It was where mall meets city hall meets cathedral. It all happened there. Um, the particular temple that they were entering, these two men in our story, let me skip that, is, um, is the temple, Herod's temple, it's called. And you can see how it dominated first century Jerusalem. A sixth of the, of the space of the land of the city was given over to the, to the temple mount. You could put 20 football fields in there. From its highest pinnacle to the valley below was about 450 feet, the equivalent of a 40-plus story, 45-story building. It was the hub of the city, but spiritually, it was the place where the Jewish people um, went to meet God. Um, someone described it as the place where uh, it was the most sacred place on earth, the place where heaven and earth meet. It was the only place to go to offer sacrifices to Yahweh. So pilgrims would come from all over to this temple for that purpose. So two men walk into a temple. That's how our story starts. Um, who are the two guys? Well, their names were Peter and John. They're two Jewish fishermen both disciples of Jesus. Interestingly, both of them had brothers who were also part of the 12 disciples, uh, Andrew and James. And they were from the same hometown, or at least the same area, by Capernaum. Um, so those are our two men. John was known as the disciple Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. And Peter was always the spokesman for the 12, and he's the one that's going to do the talking in our story today. So two men, Peter and John, walk into a temple. Why were they walking into the temple? Um, well, they were going into the temple at the ninth hour of the day, which is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was one of the set times for prayer. They were going to the temple. These two men were to pray, it seems, um, which is really no surprise because we saw last week that one of the things that the, the early church right out of the gates was devoted to was the prayers, perhaps a reference to these set times of prayer of the day set aside for prayer um, in the morning at noon and then the evening prayers at, th at three o'clock near the end of the day. Um, 
as I said last week, take a snapshot of the early church, and likely they were at prayer. And so we find Peter and John, two men, walking into a temple in order to pray. Tonight, the prayers for us happen here at 6 p.m., okay? Come join me. Let's cultivate together a devotion to prayer, to the church gathered for prayer. So we'll meet in here at 6 o'clock tonight. Um, So these two men, Peter and John, are walking into Herod's temple, and they come up near a gate called the Beautiful Gate, and someone calls out to them. He hollers out to them. So who's doing the hollering, and what does he want from them? And in our story, we find out that this, the man who was calling out to them was a crippled man, couldn't walk a step. And he'd been that way, not recently, but his whole life. He had been crippled from birth, never walked across a room, likely never took a step. And he is being carried to the gate called Beautiful outside of Herod's temple in order to beg for alms. Um, We don't know who's carrying him, likely friends or family, but it could have been a handler. And if you've ever traveled to a two-thirds world country where there are beggars on the street and they have handlers, if you've ever watched the movie Slumdog Millionaire, you know that there's a very dark side to much of the begging that goes in on those major cities. And um, our friend, this beggar at the gate, was not, was not living a good life. If he's in his 40s, as next week's passage is going to tell us, he'd likely been carried to this particular gate for three decades to sit and beg. Now, if you had to beg, the temple gate was not a bad place to beg. Um, they, historians tell us that the rabbis taught that there were three pillars for Jewish faith. The Torah, or the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, um, worship, and the showing of kindness or charity, and the giving of alms, uh, the voluntary giving of money to the poor, was one of the main ways to show kindness and was considered a major expression of your devotion to God. So if you were devoted to God, you gave alms to the poor. So with their minds set on worship, those who entered the temple for the evening sacrifice and prayer would be particularly disposed to practice their piety by generously giving alms to a lame beggar. So as I said, it was a good spot for a beggar to be. A lot of devout traffic coming in. And you figure, if our beggar friend has been begging for decades, he knew how to spot a good mark, right? He had learned who to cry out to and who was not worth his time. And so when he sees our two men walking into the temple, there was something about him that made him think these were men he needed to cry out such that when we read our story, he's actually, as he's being carried into the temple, it seems, he's crying out to them. Wasn't that they were all that wealthy looking, uh, but they had that generous look about them, I imagine. Not very wealthy, but that was okay. He was just after coin. He was not after a retirement villa, so he calls out. Okay? Asks them for some spare change. Could they give alms to the poor? But evidently, he misjudged them. 
probably overrated them because in our story, one of the men, the one who does all the talking, let him know that they had no change, no coin, not even a dime. But it's curious to me how it actually happened because, uh, you know, think about it with me. If you've ever gone to Walmart around Christmas time, uh, they're there, right? The guys with the buckets and the bells out front. Okay, so you're walking up to Walmart to the gate called Enter, right? And you're about to go in to the temple of Walmart, and, uh, and you feel in your pocket, and you've got no change, nothing, at least nothing small enough you're willing to part with, right? So, so now, now you've got choices to make. Okay, you can either walk all the way down to the grocery store entrance, but they're probably down there anyway, or you're going to have to run the gauntlet. And if you run the gauntlet, you know the routine. You do not make eye contact. You act like you're talking on your phone. You know, you, you wave to a stranger. Um, but you do not make eye contact. And in this story, that's not what happens. They tell him, we have no coin, okay? Not even a dime. And they look directly into his eyes, and they make sure that he is making eye contact with them. And I think it was probably an oddly hopeful disappointment for our beggar friend. Because then these two men on their way into the temple, they say, at least the one doing all the talking, he says, I don't have any coin, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then this one who's doing all the talking, we know him to do Peter, does something even more curious. He reaches out his hand and he grabs our beggar friend, our crippled beggar friend, by the hand like he's going to pull him up. See, nobody even makes eye contact with a crippled beggar, let alone extends a hand and like a handshake. But he's not just shaking his hand. He is going to pull him up to his feet. And so this man, 30 years a beggar, there by the gate called Beautiful, every day of his life a cripple, never even walked across a room in 40 years, he leaps to his feet. I mean, he's got some hops, okay? He's got a vertical leap, and he leaves the ground, and he leaps to his feet. After 40 years, talk to your physical therapist about this, no atrophy. Okay? He is completely healed. Um, and he starts walking. 40-something years, never a step, and now he's walking all over the place. And the three of them walk into the temple. Right? So now I have to change my story, don't I? So it's three men walk into a temple. And one of those three, I'm guessing you know which one, is jumping and leaping and hopping like a Mexican jumping bean on a hot plate. He is up and down. He's whirling. He's dancing. He's up on the ledge. He's down on the ground. He's everywhere as though he's never taken a step in his life because he hasn't until now. And as he... As he enters the temple, they go up to one of these upper areas. I think it's right in here. It's called Solomon's Portico. And the crowds see him, and they recognize him, and they come running. This whirling dervish of a man leaping and jumping and dancing and shouting praises to God because they know him, okay? For practically their whole life, decade after decade after decade, he sat out there by the gate, and he called out to them for coin. But now, 
Now he's in the temple. Now he's on his feet dancing, and it's that same voice, but now he's praising God. And they are dumbfounded. They're filled with wonder and amazement. And the crowd keeps growing bigger and bigger. And our story says that people are running to them. As they watch this, this spinning top of a man spin and dance and leap and shout to the glory of God. Now what, what just happened in that story? First of all, you need to know it's a true story. It's history. I'm not making it up. I'm just retelling Acts chapter 3, the beginning part. So it actually happened, and surely a man was healed. He had never walked in his life. He had been crippled from birth, carried everywhere, and now he is leaping all over the place declaring God's praise. That's the obvious thing that happened. But I think something, perhaps something even more significant to him happened. It's just a little directional detail in our story, but I bet it meant the world to him. In verse 8 of Acts chapter 3, in our story, it says that leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with Peter and John, walking and leaping and praising God. So when he was healed, he didn't run home. He didn't run to his friend's house. He didn't go for a walk in the park. He went into the temple. And it's somewhere he'd never, he'd never been in his life. Every day he was carried to the temple gates. And every day he sat outside and begged the coin. But he'd never been in. Not once. Not once in more than 40 years had he ever been in the temple. In the temple where people meet God. Because it was forbidden by the law of Moses. I know that in your quiet times, most of you are reading Leviticus. So Leviticus 21, let me just summarize it for you, says, uh, God's, or Moses says, speak to Aaron saying, none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand. See, the one who was not allowed is now welcomed. The one who had never come in has now entered. He who was unacceptable has been made acceptable. The one who was unclean has been made clean. His defect his blemish, the thing that kept him apart from God, has been removed by the power of the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Access to that temple, which symbolized access to God, has been granted in the name of Jesus to our, our formerly crippled friend for the very first time in his whole life. That it's hard to know how to, ex how to express how significant that is. Do you fall into, into words that you use over and over, expressions? Uh, I do. I fall into little patterns, and I use words over and over, and my kids mock me. I think some of you know what that's like. So the current expression of joy and mirth and gladness that I'm using is this, cool beans. Okay. This, this, is, 
This is cool beans. And when it's really, really cool, like the story we're reading, then it's this. Jesus says, cool beans, okay? This story is cool beans for the first time in his life. Man has access to God because of the power of the name of Jesus, Jesus the Christ from Nazareth. Um, so what's happened in our story? Well, a crippled man has been healed, and that's phenomenal. But beyond that, a crippled man, and a man estranged from God, has now been given access to God. And incredibly and unbelievably, I think there may be something even greater unfolding here. Something even greater than this man's healing and restoration at the beautiful gate of Herod's temple. See, we've seen this is really, the story's really not about two men entering a temple. Okay? And it's not really a story about three men walking into a temple. It's a story about Jesus and the power of his name to heal a man and make him acceptable to God. That's what this story is really about. And Peter <clears throat> is not about to miss this opportunity to share that greatest of news um, with the crowds that have gathered. So this is, this is the, the sermon that Peter gives. Peter saw the crowds running to them. He addressed the people and he said, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter starts his sermon by saying, hey, it's not about us. This is not about Pete and John. Okay? We did not do this. Men of Israel... Why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made this man walk? See, in verse 16, he makes it clear. By his name, by faith in Jesus' name, that has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. See, Jesus did this. In Jesus' name doesn't just mean on his behalf, but it means by virtue of. It means through Jesus' power. Jesus is working through these men. He is the one who has done this. They were apostolic agents of Jesus acting in his name with Jesus' power and authority. And then Peter paints this amazing picture of Jesus because it's not about two men walking into a temple or even three men walking into a temple. It's about Jesus. Okay? And so let me just 
point out to you who Jesus is um, in the midst of Peter's sermon. He is, right out of the box, it says that the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over to be crucified. So he is the servant of God who suffered at their hands. And that idea of a servant who suffers would have brought to mind of a, of a, Jew, a Jewish religious man saturated in the Old Testament. They would have thought perhaps of Isaiah 53, which is a phenomenal read. Halftime today. You should read Isaiah 53. It's unbelievable. Here's an excerpt. It talks about the Messiah. See if this doesn't sound like Jesus, the suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he is wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. He is the suffering servant, the Messiah. He was, back in verse 13, he's the servant who was glorified by God, a reference to his resurrection. Down in verse 15, it makes it explicit. God raised him from the dead. Verse 14 there, he's the holy and righteous one. Verse 15, he's the author of life. In verse 16 by his very name, this man has been given a new life, fully healed. Peter continues in verse 17 and 18 and says, Brothers, I want you to know, I, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your ru rulers. Because remember, he's just used all that strong language saying, You denied him, you disowned him, you had him killed. And he says, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he, being Jesus, has just fulfilled. Peter says that Jesus fulfilled the Christ-Messiah prophecies that, that the Messiah must suffer. From, from prophets like Zechariah, who wrote in Zechariah 12, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. A reference to the Messiah's great suffering. Peter continues with this, this portrait of Jesus, he, and he tells them, Repent therefore for, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Um, Peter lays it right out there. Jesus is the Christ. He is appointed for you. He's the one who blots out sins. He will bring refreshing to our world, and he will return. And he fulfills all that the prophets predicted about the Messiah. Moses, Peter goes on and says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So he's the one that Moses predicted who would come. And it shall be, he goes on, that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. So he's fulfilled everything the prophets have said, from Samuel all the way through to Malachi and even including John the Baptist. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring, offspring is singular, in one offspring of yours, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus is that offspring. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let me recap Peter's portrait of Jesus for you. He's the suffering servant, glorified by God, raised from the dead, the holy and righteous one, the author of life whose name contains power to heal. He fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah's suffering. He's the Christ appointed for you. He's the one who blots out sins and brings times of refreshing, who will return the long-awaited prophet like Moses, whom all the prophets pointed to. He's Abraham's offspring who brings blessing to all the families of the earth, the servant of God who has been raised up. It's not a story about two men walking into a temple or even three men walking into a temple. It's a story about the amazing power of the name of Jesus, this name, to restore a man to a right relationship with God. Now, I've encouraged you that it's, it's helpful a lot of times when you read these kinds of stories to find yourself in this story. Who am I in this story? Okay? So who are you in this story? And I know some of you are thinking, ooh, ooh, I know who I am. I'm Peter. Okay. Bold. Speaking to thousands. Bible verses pouring out of me. Okay. That's me. Well, let's just assume for our purposes of the day, there's much to learn from Peter's example. But let's say you're not Peter today. You're not the hero today. Okay. That leaves you with a couple of choices. Um, you could be the crippled man. Laying at the gate of the temple unable in his own power to find his way into relationship with God. That could be you. And if that's you today, then the, you know that the same hope, the same power that reconciled this man to God is available to you. The only other group we're left with, if you don't see yourself there, is that crowd that assembled in the, in the temple and... Um, Surely that's not us. Okay? We, that's not, that shouldn't be us. Because you know what Jesus, or Peter rather, said about that crowd. He said, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. It's a reference to uh, Luke chapter 23 that reads this way. It's describing what happened when Jesus was arrested and brought before Pilate. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man, Jesus, as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish 
and release him. Pilate wanted to release Jesus, but they all cried. The crowd cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. See, they are the ones. They are the ones who killed the author of life. The one who had come to bring them life, they killed and asked a murderer to be released in his place. How incredibly ironic. They are the ones guilty of the death of Christ, responsible, culpable for the death of Christ. And so the question this morning then is, are you in that crowd? Could you be found in that crowd? Are you somehow culpable for the death of Jesus? And this is exactly what Peter was talking to us about in his sermon last week. Peter himself would write in 1 Peter, he says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It was our sins that held him there. There's a song lyric that we sing that's got that expression in it. It's how deep the Father's love. And the lyrics at some point read like this. Behold the man upon a cross, my guilt upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It seems that in one way or another, we all belong in that crowd. It was our sin that held him there. This Jesus, the one Peter has painted such a vivid portrait of, he went to the cross in love for our sins, okay, not his own. And Peter, explaining this to the religious people of his day, realized that they did not know what they had done. And in verse 17, let me skip down to it here. He says, now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. You did not know what you were doing. John Paul Hill uh, writes about this, and he says that Jesus, though he was the author of life for them, they sent him to his death. This was a sin of ignorance on their part. Had they known him for who he truly was, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, he writes. Such sins were considered by the Jews as forgivable sins and were distinguished from conscious, intentional sins, which the Old Testament describes as those done with a high hand. Means of atonement were available for sins of ignorance, but not for intentional, deliberate sins. And this is based on Numbers chapter 15. Let me back up to it, and I'll read it for you. Numbers 15 reads, If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally, to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. 
You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity, his sin shall be on him. Paul Hill continues and says, Jesus himself had recognized their ignorance in crucifying him and had already prayed for their forgiveness while he was on the cross. Thus, Peter was offering the Jerusalem Jews a second chance once they had disowned the Christ. It was, however, a rejection and ignorance. Now they could accept Christ and be forgiven. Should they fail to do so once Peter gave them a full understanding of Christ's true identity, it would be a wholly different matter, a deliberate, high-handed rejection. And that would result in what Peter describes in verse 23 with language that sounds just like that Numbers passage we just read. He says, It shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, the one like Moses, who is Jesus, shall be destroyed or cut off from the people, from God's people. Um, Peter says, When we realize that it was for our sins that Jesus suffered and died, the only response that brings grace and wipes our sins away is to repent. And so, plainly, Peter simply says, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. You know, when they used to write on the tablets, the ink didn't soak in, I'm told. And so, they could just blot it out and wipe it away. And that symbolism is what Jesus has done for those who have sinned against Him in this fashion. Peter is exalting Jesus as the one who could do that. The healing of the cripple is proof that he could do that. Jesus' resurrection is proof that he could do that, and they witnessed it. The writings of all the prophets is proof fulfilled in Jesus that he can do that. So this morning, will you repent and turn to Jesus in faith and get grace to blot out your sins? Or will you be high-handed and bear your own sin and be cut off from the people of of God and God Himself? Um, Will you repent? Will you turn away from your sin and towards the mercy that God is extending now? Um, The Huffington Post reported that January a year ago in 2013, there was a 67-year-old Belgian lady named Sabine Moreau. She was leaving her home in Brussels, or rather in in Belgium, and she was going to drive 90 miles from her house to Brussels to pick up her friend. But she got bad directions from her GPS, and she drove all the way to Croatia, which is a thousand miles away. She crossed five international borders and stopped several times to get gas and take naps, but she kept pressing onward until she hit Zagreb, the capital of Croatia. 
After a few days, her son got worried and called the police, who located Sabine by following her bank statements. She told a Belgian reporter, I was distracted, so I kept going. I saw all kinds of signs, first in French, then in German, and finally in Croatian, but I continued driving because I was distracted. But when I passed Zagreb, I told myself, I should turn around. Okay. This, this day, when Peter preached this message, 2,000 people, we'll find out when Jake teaches us next week, 2,000 people repented and turned around in terms of their relationship to Christ. This is a great day to turn around. Some of you have driven past all kinds of signs. Friends have been talking to you and family members have been praying for you and you've been here and the Spirit of God has been prompting you time after time after time perhaps and you've never, never fully turned and never fully repented. This is a great day. This is a great day to turn around. The only way to get free from the guilt of the crowd is to admit you are in it and to confess your sins and let this Jesus, the one who healed a crippled man by faith in his name, blot away your sins and let you in to a relationship with God. Let's bow and pray together. It's an amazing story, Jesus. We marvel at what happened I pray now that you'd help us see it's bigger than that. It is our story. It can be our story. And so I pray for those crippled in soul and unable to draw near to you because of their sin, that grace, Jesus, in your name would come and make them whole. That their sins would be blotted away by you, Jesus the Christ, come. Lord, help us. Help us to bear this message well. Help us to be like Peter in that regard. Lots of friends sitting outside the gate. No hope of getting in Jesus unless you come. Help us to bear you well to to our friends and our neighbors and those we love. We ask this, Jesus, in your matchless name. Amen. If you'll stand, we're going to declare our faith in God's name, Jesus' name together.